Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my guest to you. But before doing so, I want to say thank you to all of our patron supporters who make it possible to produce material like this and put it out on the internet for free. And uh, just uh, thank you so much for your support. And you too can become a supporter just by, excuse me, following the Patreon link in the description below. Or now we actually have the option to do so here on YouTube. Uh, You can click the join button here on the video or on the the channel's homepage and become a supporter here on YouTube as well. You get the same benefits as on Patreon. now, on today's episode, I will be, let me bring him in real quick, sorry, one second. I will be interviewing Stephen Nemesh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. If not, he can correct correct me. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate you agreeing to do this. Uh, it means a lot to me, so thank you for taking the time out of your early morning, actually, to uh, to do this. I've uh, I believe I've read some of your articles and um, watched some of your videos over on Capturing Christianity as well as elsewhere. You now have your own uh, YouTube channel. I'll let you talk about that here in a second. But uh, anyway, I'm familiar with your material. I like your defense of classical theism specifically, divine simplicity, which is going to be the subject of discussion today. But before getting into that, Stephen, I thought it might be helpful if you give uh, the audience a brief uh, introduction to yourself. Sure. I am an adjunct instructor at Grand Canyon University, which is a a private Christian school here in Phoenix, Arizona. I teach philosophy, uh, and I am also a doctoral candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary. I study under Professor uh, Oliver Crisp. Uh, maybe some of my, maybe some people might know him. Uh, and I also uh, collaborate a lot with Dr. Veli Matsukarainen, who's another professor at Fuller. Uh, basically, I'm I've got a complete draft of my dissertation. I'm you know. Pretty much in January, I'm going to submit my dissertation for defense, and hopefully I'll have my PhD here in a couple months. Um, my The title of my dissertation is uh, A Constructive Theological Phenomenology of Scripture. So although on the internet I talk a lot about classical theism, uh, metaphysics, and Thomism, and all those things, uh, in my dissertation I'm actually talking about things that are very different. I'm uh, doing a, a phenomenological analysis of the act of reading the Bible as Scripture, and in my dissertation I do more phenomenology you know, in my internet life, I do more uh, metaphysics, more, cast, uh, you know, talk about classical theism. Apart from all that, I, you know, I do have my YouTube video where I, or my YouTube uh, channel, where now I've decided to start posting videos in which I put forth uh, philosophical and theological ideas for consideration. I find that people find uh, YouTube videos, I think YouTube is like the new thing to do. I don't think people really read blogs much anymore. Uh, there was a time where I had a blog and it was, it was going pretty okay, but I think now everybody's on YouTube and people are interacting with each other on YouTube. So I'll see if I get anybody, you know, responding vociferously to any of my <laughs> any of my YouTube videos. I'm still waiting for somebody to make a hate video in response to. Oh, it'll, once I it'll, it'll, that, you're good. Yeah, it'll undoubtedly come. Uh, they they <laughs> do it to me, so they're definitely going to do it to you. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it is. Uh, I, I mention this a lot in my interviews because it, it just. Uh, I don't know, it just always gets brought up, but uh, yeah, this phenomena of YouTube and uh, academia, the, the connection here, I don't know what it is, but the, there seems to be a closing of the gap between uh, lay people like myself and people in academia like you, not in um, uh, intelligence or anything like that, but just access to this kind of information, that that gap is what's closing. Um, and so it's it's really neat to see it happening. Um, I like the direction that it's heading. I keep seeing more and more academics like yourself on YouTube and engaging with that, and I think it's awesome. 
because um, it's, uh, it's exactly the kind of uh, nuance that needs to be thrown into these apologetic and philosophical online apologetic uh, dialogues. But anyway, uh, tell me, how did you become a Christian and how did you become interested in the philosophy of religion? Yeah, uh, I could give you a, a sociological answer to that question. I became a Christian more or less because I was raised in a, a Christian home. My parents are uh, Pentecostals from Romania, and so I grew up in the Romanian Pentecostal church here in the American diaspora. Um, I've always been a Christian. I've always um, believed in God. I've always had a kind of a, a sort of a tacit awareness of Christ and the desire to follow Christ. Um, I have not always been equally, you know, conservative or liberal, perhaps, in my theology. I went, when I was an undergrad, I went through a kind of a phase uh, in which I sympathized with a more pluralist um, synthesis of Christianity and other religions. But I remember towards the end of my time in my undergrad, I read uh, the book, The Crucified God by Jürgen Moltmann. And I remember his descriptions of the the abject you know conditions of godlessness in which Christ died as being very transformative to me it made a difference to me the fact that Christ died that way whereas and Moltmann has this wonderful passage where you know he distinguishes Christ from every other kind of religious or philosophical figure of significance Christ doesn't die like a stoic hero you know uh, simply resigned you know in perfect ataraxia to his faith uh, Christ doesn't die like some kind of zealot or or martyr for a cause, you know, heroically in battle or anything like that. Christ dies really rather pathetically. He dies alone. He's scared. He, he, um, you know, is crucified. His friends abandon him. Uh, his mother and one friend of his are left to watch him die. So I, I remember reading that book by Moltmann, uh, and although I have, you know, very significant theological differences, you know, uh, in my understanding compared to that of Moltmann, I remember reading that book on on Christ. Uh, and his death, and I remember thinking, no, there's something special about Christ. There's something distinct about him that cannot simply be, you know, syncretized or synthesized with what other religious uh, perspectives are doing or saying. So, although I've always been a Christian, you know, when I was an undergrad, I had a sort of a pluralistic period, and then I came out of that uh, as a result of reading Jürgen Moltmann. Um, theologically, I would describe myself as a kind of a broadly uh, reformed, broadly Catholic with a small C, um, you know, Christian. I sympathize with Thomas Aquinas in a lot of ways. I sympathize with uh, T.F. Torrance and Karl Barth in a lot of ways. Uh, basically, I'm kind of hard to pin down, but I think I think I try to be orthodox. I try to be you know, sort of run-of-the-mill traditional Christian in a lot of ways, uh, even if I bring my own perspective and my own uh, my own flavor to that, you know, to my own brand of orthodoxy. Yeah, very good. Thanks for sharing. Uh, so. Today's uh, topic of discussion is going to be that of divine simplicity and some reasons for thinking that God is divinely simple, and then addressing at least uh, one objection anyway. And so, uh, but before uh, going any further, I thought it might be helpful to uh, define divine simplicity. What do we mean? What is divine simplicity? What do we mean when we say that God is simple? Yeah, um, I tell my students, for example, uh, that Divine simplicity teaches that God is not an individual thing with, you know, a certain nature and a various, you know, various determinate properties. Um, that's what I am. And, and so in, in my classes at school, uh, I, I call this a vista. Anything that is an individual being with a determinate set of properties and a certain nature, that's a vista. 
Now, this, norm, this language of this such comes from Aristotle, uh, and it means something slightly different in Aristotle than it does for me. But anyway, that's the language that I use. Uh, basically, what I tell my students is that divine simplicity says that unlike me, unlike you know the various items in my apartment here, uh, unlike anything that we experience in the world, God is not an individual thing with a certain nature and various determinate properties. Uh, that's what the doctrine of divine simplicity says. And as far as I understand it, the doctrine of divine simplicity is a negative doctrine. The idea is to say what God is not. And really the idea is to say that God is not like everything else that we know about in this most radical way. Not an individual thing with a certain nature that defines it and various determinate properties that follow from that nature or that are possessed contingently in virtue of other things. That's really the the core of the doctrine of the divine simplicity as far as I'm concerned. The idea that God is not an individual with promises. Okay, so what are some reasons for believing that God uh, is this way? Yeah, um, well, in the first place, I mean, the basic reason is that nothing that is an individual, you know, an individual being with a certain nature and determinate properties, nothing that is like that could be ultimate. Nothing that is like that could be the, the rock-bottom level of reality in the way that God is supposed to be. Um, and this this argument can be shown in a lot of different ways. Uh, you might say, for example, that anything that's an individual being with properties uh, is a unity, um, and this unity has to be accounted for in some way, right? Because uh, if you just consider, for example, this mug, right? This mug has, this is an individual thing. It has a certain, maybe it has a certain nature. Aristotelians might uh, squabble with me on that, but it certainly has various properties. For example, it has a size, a shape, uh, a density, a mass, volume, etc. Um, if you think about all those things separately, if you think, for example, about the size and the shape of that mug, there is nothing about that particular size and that particular shape that demands that this mug exists. Other things could also have had that size. Other things could also have had that shape. Other things could look exactly like that. Other things could have that volume, that density, whatever. So that means that the properties by themselves do not have any essential connection to this individual. And on the other hand, there are also individual things that don't have those properties. So it's not as if the notion of individuality itself is somehow to explain the unity of this, of this item. So because this mug here is a, is a unity of what you might call individuation and various properties, uh, and this unity itself cannot be accounted for in terms of any of the, uh, any of the properties or the individuation itself, it has to have an explanation in something outside of it. Something outside of the mug has to account for the unity of the mug uh, as an existing thing. And this something else obviously cannot itself be something, <laughs> an individual with properties. Because for any individual with properties, we're going to be able to show that the unity of them is contingent. The unity of them doesn't, uh, doesn't explain itself. Uh, and so therefore, God, as the cause of the unity of things, cannot himself be uh, an individual thing with various properties. Uh, because you could always ask the question, okay, well, there's nothing about omnipotence, you know, and this sounds sort of controversial, but um, I, would, I would really insist on it. There's nothing about omnipotence, right? If God is an individual, uh, there's nothing about omnipotence per se that demands that God be the individual that has omnipotence as opposed to some other, you know, individual. Some, the difference, the, the, the problem here is that a lot of times we talk about God as, you know, as if it were a proper name. And then sometimes we talk about God as if we're just talking about whatever it is that exists divinely. And those are two different ways of talking. Um, so... That would be one line of argument. Another line of argument is that, you know, I gave this argument just yesterday morning. I was lecturing, to, you know, over Zoom to some uh, some uh, apologetics interested uh, 
uh, people in the Philippines. And I was giving them an argument for the existence of God that entails divine simplicity. And I was arguing like this, you know, any object of our experience, any anything that we encounter in our experience that is an individual thing with properties, um, you know, in various circumstances and conditions of experience, we can disclose various properties that it has. For example, in the current conditions, I can see the color of this mug, uh, but I can't see, for example, at what temperature it would start to crack or, or to fall apart. In order to see that, I would need to put it in different circumstances. Um, I can't now tell whether the mug would, would shatter if I were to drop it from this height onto the carpet. In order to see that, I would have to change the conditions of experience in some way. And so in various ways, the different properties of the objects can be disclosed in different circumstances. They're not all present to me at once, but they can be disclosed in different conditions of experience. But there is something that will never be disclosed to me, uh, no matter the conditions of experience in which I see the object, and that is whether the object exists. There is something that is left over, always. It's always an open question, no matter what conditions I experience the object in, uh, whether it exists independently of my mind, independently of my seeing it. Uh, and the reason for thinking this, you know, I, I could point to the various skeptical arguments that have been popular throughout the history of philosophy, like Descartes' dreaming argument, or Hilary Putnam's uh, brain in a vat argument, or even the Matrix, right? Even when Neo is in the Matrix, he still has a whole world that appears to him, it appears with certain regularities, all the items in that world have various properties that Neo can discern and experience, but none of it is real outside of his mind. Uh, so existence... Existence independent of the mind is not something that is disclosed in experience, but this thing is disclosed in experience. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, people may disagree with me, but as far as I'm concerned, the mug, the only thing that there is, you know, that I call the mug, is this thing that I experience. This three-dimensional object with various properties and various dimensions and uh, qualities that can be disclosed in experience. So the mug is totally revealed in experience as a whole, but its existence is not. So for that mean, for, for me, that means that there is a distinction between the mug and its existence. Um, and this is something that's going to hold true for any individual existing thing, anything that has that is an individual with properties. There's going to be a distinction between the individual with properties and its existence. Um, but God, of course, is that which exists simply by nature. That's how we define God. God exists uh, simply in virtue of what he is and not in virtue of something else. He's not caused to exist. And so that means that God cannot be an individual thing with various properties and a certain nature. Because if he were, then there would always be a question of whether or not he exists. He would not exist by nature. And of course, I'm assuming that existence is not a property. Right. Yeah. Okay. So those are th that would be two ways that I would try to show that divine simplicity is true. I would say on the one hand, uh, anything that is a, a unity, an individual with various properties, needs to be caused or explained by something else. And on the other hand, nothing that is an individual being with a certain nature and various properties exists simply in virtue of what it is, right? So in order for God to be that which exists simply in virtue of what he is, he would not, uh, he could not be an individual with a certain nature and various properties. Mm -hmm. So the, at least the, I think the second uh, way you went about it sounds uh, pr pretty similar to uh, Aquinas' distinction between existence and essence. Um, I'm wondering yeah. why uh, God cannot have... Um, uh, metaphysical uh, parts or properties like um, um, omniscience, omnipotence, omnibenevolence, why these can't be uh, real distinctions in God. I think a lot of people see per perfectly clear why God cannot have uh, physical parts 
uh, like that. But why not the metaphysical ones like omnipotence, om omnibenevolence, omniscience? Why can't these really be um, distinct realities in God or properties? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I would ask, is there anything about omnipotence uh, that demands that an omnipotent being also be omnibenevolent? It would seem not. As far as I'm concerned, it would seem that there is no necessary connection between the two. And so that means that if there is a unity in God of omnipotence and omnibenevolence, then something has to account for this unity. Um, and presumably, omnipotence and omnibenevolence are not the sorts of properties that a being could simply acquire, you know, by virtue of an act of the will. Um, I assume that omnibenevolence has something to do with God's character. And so therefore, it's prior to any action of his. It's not like God, you know, by a free act of the will, could simply take up omnibenevolence as the way he's going to be. Um, you know, supposedly his omnibenevolence is prior to any action that he's going to take. Uh, so if his omnibenevolence is not something that he acquires by means of a free action, uh, but there's also nothing about his various other, you know, so-called essential properties that demand that they be uh, unified in a single subject, then God is going to need something outside of him to explain his okay. unity. There's going to be something that needs to show why is this one being simultaneously omnipotent and uh, omnibenevolent when neither of those properties demands it. So this is appealing to something like a PSR then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that so. I think that uh, classical theism in general maintains something like a doctrine of the you know of like a principle of sufficient reason. The way that I formulate it is like this, and this also is a, a formulation that you know appears in Thomas Aquinas in the De Ente Essentia uh, work. Uh, basically, what I say is that whatever quality a thing has that does not belong to it, simply in virtue of what it is, in other words, simply in virtue of its nature or its essence, uh, it receives from something else. Whatever quality a thing has that does not belong to it in virtue of its nature, it receives uh, from something else. So, for example. Um, you know, you might ask the question, why does Stephen have the capacity to speak like, have the capacity to learn a language? That's a property that I have. That's a quality that I have. And it's a sufficient answer to that question to say, well, Stephen is a human being. You can simply point to what kind of a thing I am uh, and say and give a sufficient explanation. But if we were to ask the question, why does Stephen know how to speak English? In that case, it's no longer sufficient to say, well, because he's a human being. Because, of course, you know, I was human before I learned English. And there are other humans who, are, who do not know English at all. Uh, so being a human is not sufficient to account for the fact of my knowing how to speak English, even though being a human is sufficient to account for the fact of my having the capacity to learn language. Okay. And so in order to explain why I know English, you have to point to something outside of me, namely my parents. So my something like omnibenevolence is going to be, you're saying, more like speaking English as opposed to speaking a language. Well, actually, no. I'm going to say that um, omnibenevolence for God would have to be something like... Oh, no, I know. Um, that. Sorry, I said that wrongly. That's what you would believe, but you're saying the reason, um, shoot, the the other, uh, the opposition would have to say that it's something like the speaking English as opposed to... Uh, right, right. Because, so, for example, let's say we take for granted that God is omnipotent. Why then should he be omnibenevolent also? Mm -hmm. His omnipotence is not sufficient to explain that. So, and the, the only so, other option would be to, you know, impose a, an act of the will or something, but that would be impossible. I'm trying to put on my theistic personalist hat. It's probably not going to go very well, or yeah. whatever term they prefer to be called. Um, but uh, neoclassical theist or whatever. Um, what would they say? Perhaps uh, God has these things necessarily, or something like that. Yeah, I think that basically what uh, you know, my friend Ryan Mullins or some other uh, theistic personalist sympathizer would say is 
that no, these things, you know, these properties are just uh, essentially bundled together. They belong to God in virtue of the fact that, you know, that's what it is to be God, um, and so on and so forth. Um, this would would do your response be that this is a violation of the PSR? I mean, yeah, effectively, I'm going to say that this is just an assertion. Uh, there is nothing about omnipotence the way it is typically defined that demands that an omnipotent being also be um, uh, omnibenevolent. Mm-hmm. And neither is there anything about omnibenevolence that demands that an omnibenevolent being be uh, omnipotent. So then the question for me is what accounts for this? Well, the only way to account really for this is to posit something else, you know, some sort of like a, a divine nature or something like that. Uh, and say that omnipotence and omniscience and omnibenevolence are not themselves, you know, sort of taken as a set, the divine nature. There is some prior thing, this, you know, divine essence um, and omnipotence, omnibenevolence and so on, somehow flow out of it. In the way that, you know, human nature is one thing and the capacity to learn language is another thing. You know, the whole of human nature is not bound up in the capacity to learn language, although that capacity does follow from having a human nature. So they might posit some kind of divine nature, which is prior to omnipotence, prior to omnibenevolence, uh, but which, you know, out of which these qualities somehow flow. Okay, so then you're positing a divine nature, and you're saying that the principle of unity of these qualities is this prior divine nature, and the qualities somehow flow out of the nature in the way that the capacity for language or the capacity for laughter flow out of my having a human nature, which is not, you know, simply reduced to either of these. That's all well and good, but... The problem is not avoided because, again, there is a distinction between um, nature and individual, right? Every nature by itself is sort of a general thing. A nature is simply a possibility that a way could be. And so for that reason, there's nothing about a nature that, it, that, demands, that, be, that, it deme- that demands that it be instantiated by any particular individual. There's nothing about human nature in general that demands that I exist as a human being. Uh, there's nothing about human nature that demands that you or any of our listeners exist as a human being, right? Human nature could remain exactly as it is, even if I, as a particular human, had never existed. And so the question arises, okay, if, if God has a nature, this divine nature, right, maybe you've accounted for the unity of divine properties in that way, but you've only introduced another question, which is, why should God, you know, exist at all, right? right. Because his nature doesn't demand it. Uh, and so then you, again, would need something to account for the unity between the nature and the individual which has it. Um, and this is going to be whatever it is that causes God. So once more, you're going to have to introduce a cause for God. The only way out of this is to say that God is the nature. God is the, you know, one and the same thing. But, with now, nature, you're, but now you're Thomas. So. Yeah, now you're a Thomas. <laughs> so I think we're starting to touch on a question that I did have. I'm going to ask it out of order, I think. But uh, since we're already starting to touch on it, some people would say that the denial of di- uh, divine simplicity is going to entail atheism. And I think you're kind of getting, we, we were, I don't know if you want to say those exact words or not, I'll let you answer, but uh, we were kind of getting there. And I already said, um, but now if you, if, you, if you do take this route of saying God has a nature and this nature accounts for those uh, properties we were talking about, well, now you have to answer the question of why this nature exists at all. Why is it instantiated in, in in reality? In other words, why does God exist? Because it doesn't seem to because right. it seems that you just undercut all the classical arguments that we would give for the existence of God if you're going to deny divine simplicity. So now we can go back to the the drawing board as it was and ask you, well, why do you think God exists at all? Yeah, I think that's a that's a an excellent question. Um, 
You know, it's interesting. I here I will I will hazard making some you know more scandalous affirmations. Uh, you know, and maybe these will get me in trouble, but I this is what it means to be a philosopher is to take <laughs> yeah. risks like this. Uh, I think that um, classical theism can be understood as a kind of atheism. And I think that theistic personalism can be understood as a kind of atheism. So I think that whether you're a classical theist or you're a theistic personalist, you are going to be open to the charge of atheism in one way or another. Um, the, the classical theist is going to be open to the charge of atheism because classical theism does not conceive of God, again, as an individual thing with a certain nature and various properties that can somehow be identified in my mental landscape alongside other individual objects. Right. So for classical theists, um, you know, God ends up being something that we don't know what he is. We know that all the world and everything exists in virtue of him, you know, but absent the incarnation, absent any kind of intervention in the world on the part of God. All we can say is that we don't know what God is. He is that in virtue of which. But what he is actually, I don't know. And John of Damascus says this, right? He says what God is in nature and in essence is totally unknown and beyond understanding. Thomas Aquinas also says that we don't know what God is. We don't know the essence of God. We only know what he is not. Um, you know, so classical theists have emphasized that uh, the most that we can say about God, strictly speaking, you know, and everything else that they say, I think has to be interpreted in light of this recognition, is that God is a, that in virtue of which. But what he is in himself, who knows? So to some extent, classical theism can be seen as a kind of an atheism insofar as it rejects, you know, the knowable God, the God who is familiar, who is like us, who relates to us in exactly the way that we relate to him and so on. On the other hand, theistic personalism is also a form of atheism because theistic personalism uh, basically makes the ground level of reality to be just one more being, one more individual thing with a certain nature and various properties. Um, you know, for theistic personalism, you don't get beyond the realm of individual being. There's just... One individual being that somehow is responsible for the existence of all the rest of them, uh, but there's nothing beyond, you know, the individual being with a certain nature and various properties. That's the ultimate category. Um, and so to the extent that you think that God has to be different from us, to the extent that you think that God has to be something that is like us, or that is not like us, rather, you know, God cannot be just one more individual thing among things, to that extent, theistic personalism is going to be an atheism. So maybe what I'm suggesting here is that the term atheism is kind of, you know, relative, right? Depending on what you think God must be like, classical theism can be an atheism, uh, but also theistic personalism can be an atheism. Yeah, I see. Um, they could both be accused of it, um, but there just seems to be no—I mean, the classical theist is still going to have the, the argumentation for the existence of God. It's going to arrive at pure act and things like that, but the theistic personalist is going to have to deny those. And it just seems like you're basically just positing that God exists, and he not only that he exists, but also I think you lose your argument for monotheism, and so you're 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 I don't know. So much becomes inexplicable if you if you deny this uh, divine simplicity to me and to my mind. I'm sure. I mean, I'm an idiot, so I'm sure I'm completely wrong. But it just seems like you you lose your argumentation for a single God. Who exists, um, you know, eternally? You basically just have to posit those three things: that he exists, that he exists singularly, and um, yeah, I don't know, but um, that's what it seems like to me. Is that what it seems like to you, or am I being uncharitable? You know, I think our theistic personalist friends uh, would probably say something like, 
Well, no, that doesn't follow because there are all these natural theological arguments to try to show the existence of God or try to show how God's existence, you know, um, would make sense of a lot of facts of our experience. For example, the Kalam cosmological argument tries to show that the universe has a first cause. I think that um, I actually more- think the Kalam is going to end in uh, classical theism if you rightly understand it. I think there's a little interesting. Well, because it was so, put it this way, and uh, we can explore this real quickly. I know it wasn't the subject of discussion, but I've yeah. I've only talked to a few people about this, so I'm interested to hear somebody who's actually intelligent uh, comment on this. But if the conclusion is that uh, there's a the universe has a cause, this cause must be timeless, immaterial. Uh, he's going to throw in personal at the end. I'm going to deny that. But uh, if it's timeless, then it doesn't change. And now we've got immutability. I don't think that his and uh, William Lane Craig's initially changeless uh, being that makes any sense. It's just changeless. And so we're going to have immutable. And then I think from there, you're going to be able to get to the, the rest of the classical theist um, contentions. Mm-hmm. Don't you think or no? You know, um, I mean, if it, if, I if, I... if it truly is timeless, the way that the classical thesis is going yeah. to define that. I remember, um, <laughs> excuse me, um, I remember reading an article recently. I, I could not, for the life of me, tell you who it was by. Uh, critiquing, this is like a recent article, so it's just come out, so somebody out there might know the title of the article. Um, critiquing the Kalam cosmological argument on precisely this issue about the, the supposed timelessness of the first cause. Um, you know, I really would have to think about yeah. it some more. I think it depends on, you know, how you think a cause is supposed to operate. William Lane Craig basically says that the the, the agency of the first cause is, is kind of like libertarian freedom. You know, he sort of like spontaneously causes himself to, uh, to do something and to bring about a world. Um, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't really know. I, I would have to think about it. Yeah. More. I think what you're saying is interesting. Yeah. No. It's just a side note. I've always thought it. The the second I started getting into classical theism and and reading, uh, you know, people like Ed Fazer and 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 he was really my jumping off point. Um, Rob yeah. Rob Coons and and people like that. Um, and then I, I went back to these arguments that I was initially familiar with because William Lane Craig is just so popular, like the Kalam. And uh, I don't agree with his uh, little, little bit about uh, God is initially changeless, but then becomes changeable once he at the at the moment of creation or however he words it. I think that's a contradiction. I think that's just incoherent. I mean, you, what you basically mean is, well, he's thinking of God as a, like a human being, like a person like us. He was just being still, and then he started moving and started creating. Right, but right, that, right. that's not what we mean by changeless. By changeless, you mean unable to change that's what that word means but um, and so if you take that definition now we're 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 bordering classical theism so i know that a lot of classical theists are going to be thomists who don't think that the clom succeeds in the first place i personally do i think thomas was wrong about that but um and so if it does i think it actually becomes an argument of classical so anyway that's just a thought i've always had but uh yeah it's, it's something to ponder maybe it's not but uh um, did you want to say anything else about that, or should we move on with the? Device? Uh, I think you should you should make a video. You should make a video and call out, you know, our friend Cameron Bertuzzi and and uh, <laughs> try to convince him on the on the basis of his favorite argument that he should be a classical theist. Yeah. I think that'd be great. Well, we'll see. I don't know how much I want to do that, but uh, <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, we talked about uh, does divine simplicity entail atheism? 
Uh, what are what are some of this is a question that you wanted to throw in here. What are, what are some of the theological significances? What is the uh, theological significance of the doctrine of divine simplicity? And then we'll get to the objection. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting question, um, and you could discuss this question from a lot of different angles. Um, you know, Lewis Ayers and Khalid Anatolios in their respective uh, work on the Council of Nicaea and the development of Trinitarian doctrine. They both emphasize that for Augustine, for Gregory of Nazianzus, and for these figures, the doctrine of divine simplicity was a non-negotiable in preventing uh, Trinitarian doctrine from becoming tritheism. Uh, basically, they thought that the only way you could prevent the Trinity from becoming a doctrine of three gods is by assuming that the divine nature is identical with, you know, the, the you know the divine. Uh, person in some sense, that there's a single divine nature which is not shareable among multiple objects uh, and which is equally possessed by all the members of the Trinity at once. Uh, you know, like John of Damascus says somewhere, there's one power, one wisdom, one goodness, one all the rest, uh, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all share that. It's not as if the Father has his own goodness and the Son has his own goodness and so on. You would have three gods at that point. Um, so historically speaking, the importance of the divine simplicity was uh, really prominent in the debate about Trinitarian doctrine that took place in the 300s and 400s, uh, because it was precisely the doctrine of divine simplicity that prevented the Christian notion of God as Trinity from devolving into a kind of a tritheism. But I would also say that there's a kind of a value to the extreme apophaticism of divine simplicity for theology. Uh, and it may not be exactly what you would initially think. On the one hand, classical theism and its you know, in in and the doctrine of divine simplicity, especially, inspires a sort of very exigent apophaticism about about God. We cannot really know, like I said earlier, we cannot know what God is. We don't understand Him. Uh, we don't understand His nature. We don't understand His essence. God is simply a that in virtue of which, uh, but He beyond that, He is unknowable to us. It's very important to be able to say all that. It's very important to maintain this like extreme apophaticism about God uh, from the point of view of philosophy, from the point of view of natural theology, because that makes the revelation of God in Christ all the more important. Uh, I remember, you know, L Luther makes this distinction between the hidden God and the revealed God. Uh, God, you know, as known philosophically, who is basically a darkness, and you, you can't know anything about him, and all he does is, all he can do is terrify human beings. And then there's God as he's revealed in Christ, who shows himself as loving and as being for human beings, for them. Um, I, think it's, I think divine simplicity is very important because we need to have something to hold on to. We need to you know, be able to say something about God. We have to know something about how he, how he feels about us, you know, so to speak, to use an anthropomorphic uh, uh, image. And precisely because we can't do that philosophically, precisely because we don't have, you know, sort of pure natural theological philosophical access to God's attitude towards us, we have to have Christ. We need the incarnate Christ to teach us how to think and how to talk and how to feel about God. So I think that's the really the more significant point about divine simplicity for Christian theology is the, the way that it puts the incarnation sort of center stage mm -hmm. for understanding God. That's what I would say. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have thought about that elsewise. You're right. That was, that was, that was uh, not what I was initially expecting, like you said, but uh, that's very good. I like that. Um, okay, let's go into uh, one of the uh, objections. It's kind of a more popular objection nowadays. Um, and by popular, I don't mean the popular level. It's in the academic uh, 
stuff as well. I just mean it's uh, uh, pretty popular. And that is the modal collapse argument against uh, divine simplicity. Uh, so perhaps it'd be useful to explain what a modal collapse is and uh, then why some people think that divine simplicity entails a modal collapse. Yeah, so in philosophy, we deal with uh, what are called modal categories. Uh, for example, possibility and necessity, actuality, uh, contingency, and so on. These are categories that have to do with the mode of existence of something. You know, uh, so for example, I am actually seated right now, but I am possibly standing. You know, there's a possibility for me to stand, and that possibility becomes actualized when I actually get out of the chair. Right now, I'm actually speaking, but I'm possibly silent. Then I was possibly, I was actually silent and possibly speaking. Now I'm actually speaking again. Um, you know, I exist contingently. For example, I exist. My ex existence is actual, but it doesn't have to be. I could go out of existence and there was a time when I didn't exist. God supposedly exists necessarily. Uh, he exists, but it's not possible for him not to exist. This is not a possibility, you know, for him in the way that it is for me. Uh, so these are moral categories. These are different ways in which we describe the modes of being of something. Some things are possible. Some things are actual. Some things are necessary, some things are contingent. Now, a modal collapse occurs when, as a result of some philosophical idea, some philosophical thesis, all the categories of modality collapse into a single one. So, for example, an idea would entail modal collapse if it would turn everything into a contingent fact, and nothing would be necessary. Or if it would turn everything into a necessary fact, then nothing would be contingent. And the idea behind this modal collapse objection to divine simplicity is that the doctrine of divine simplicity in, entails that everything is necessary. And how does that work? Well, it, it works like this. If God is absolutely simple, then it follows that he does not have any potentialities. He does not have any like possible properties that he doesn't actually have and so on. He is just a simple reality. The way he is in actuality is the only way he could be. It cannot be different. But God is also the creator of the world. God causes the world to exist. So let's ask the question, could God have caused a different world than this? Could God have uh, brought a different world into existence? Could God have abstained from creating any world whatsoever? It seems like if you say, yes, God could have created a different world, or he could have created no world at all, then there has to exist in God some kind of potentiality, some kind of possibility for creating or not creating which goes variously actualized or unactualized. Uh, uh, but if you say that God has no such potentiality, then it would seem that he could only ever do what he's actually doing, and that means that he could only cause this world. This world is the only possible world. Every other supposedly possible world is, in fact, impossible. Uh, everything that is actually true would turn out to be necessarily true. Everything that is actually false would turn out to be necessarily false and so on. So this is how you get a modal collapse from divine simplicity. From the fact that God cannot be different, you infer that nothing about the world could be different either. And so everything, you know, the necessity of God travels up into the world and infects it, so to speak, so that the world is just as necessary as God is. Very good. So that, that in a nutshell, is the modal collapse of projection. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I was interacting with somebody in the uh, live, that was a good explanation of the, the modal collapse. So I was interacting with somebody in the live chat because it appears that the set, uh, the the YouTube live settings, uh, the video went live unlisted, which means it didn't go live to YouTube. So unless you got the link from my Twitter from a couple of days ago when I posted it on there, you actually can't get access to this live video right now. And that's why we have one person in the live chat. 
um i feel, i just was thinking this whole because i can see how many people are watching and so i just thought i guess it's too early for people that's fine uh but uh, actually it's because i'm an idiot i don't know why my settings changed my settings are always set to public i don't know why it would have changed it unless it, but that's okay i mean i'll change it to public as soon as we're done here but uh thank you for, right. uh, that was a good uh, explanation for that um so why do you believe that this objection um actually fails yeah well i think um i think that there is a way out of this objection that is open to the classical theist. Um, I think that this objection presupposes uh, a certain principle of causality, which I have called the difference principle. Uh, and the difference principle says this. A possible difference in effect requires or presupposes a possible difference in cause. Uh, a possible difference in effect presupposes a possible difference in cause. So let me give this example. I have you know, a car, a Volkswagen Jetta. Uh, every morning when I go to work, I put the key into the ignition and I turn it, the engine turns on, uh, and then I'm able to drive, right? And that happens every single day. And we might say that my putting the key in the ignition and turning it is a cause, or at least it's a part of this total process that functions as a cause for the, you know, ignition of the engine or the turning on of the car or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to describe it. Now, suppose one day I turn the key and nothing happens. Okay, this is a difference in effect. I... You know, I've been turning the key, and now the effect is different. The car is not turning on. So naturally, I think, okay, there must be something different about, you know, the cause in order to account for this difference in effect. There must be something different about the total mechanism that starts with me turning the key and ends in turning on the, the, ignition, the engine igniting. There must be something different here that accounts for this difference in the effect. Uh, and so that is the difference principle, right? A possible difference in, in effect presupposes a possible difference in cause. Now, this principle is very plausible. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I think that it's open to the classical theists to say that when it comes to God's causality of the world, when it comes to God's creating the world, this principle doesn't hold. God does not, um, you know, need to be different in order for the world as his effect to be possibly different. Uh, so this is how the, the proponent of divine simplicity can escape the modal collapse objection by saying that although God remains the same in every possible world, so to speak, uh, his effect is different. And that's because this so-called difference principle does not apply to him. I mean, put another way, effectively what we're saying is that God's causation of the world is indeterministic. Because I think that's exactly what uh, indeterminism amounts to. Indeterminism says that an effect could be different while the cause remains the same. Uh, and you can point to different examples of indeterminism that have been, you know, believed by philosophers. For example, free will. Yeah. So how does this square with divine simplicity, though? A denial. Of, I, so I think I think someone's going to say you, if you believe that uh, divine simplicity is true, you can't deny this uh, difference principle because God just is His act of creation. So they must be the same. There can't be this difference. Is that right? Is that what they would uh, say? Well, um, so. When we talk about God's act, we can talk about that in two different senses. On the one hand, we can refer to that in virtue of which God produces an effect, and that's just himself, right? He doesn't, you know, for example, if I play the piano, I don't simply play the piano directly. I have to cause in myself, in my body, various modifications of my body. I have to move my fingers around. I have to sit at the piano and so on. Um, and so in this mediated way, I cause changes in my body, and these changes in my body then produce effects in the outside world, uh, which, you know, constitute playing the piano. 
But for God, there is nothing like that. Because God is absolutely simple, he does not first affect the contingent change in himself, and then this contingent change produces an effect in the outside world. God simply produces his effect directly. There's no mediating, you know, internal causation involved with God creating the world. Uh, and so that means that when we describe God's act, God's act of creation, we can mean this in two senses. We can mean that in virtue of which God creates, and that is just himself. Or we can mean uh, that effect which is produced by God, and that is referring to the world. Um, and so basically the difference principle says that God, in virtue of him, or the denial of the difference principle would entail that God, in virtue of himself, can produce different possible effects. He does not have to be different in order for him to have different possible effects. Uh, and there is nothing, there's no mediating term here. It's not as if there's God, he causes a change in himself, the way that I would cause a movement in my body, and then the effect of the world is produced in the way that my playing the piano has an effect. Is produced. There's nothing like that with God. There's simply God and the world. Uh, and everything is, is pushed outside of God. God remains exactly as he is across possible worlds, whereas the world that is created by God is different or else it doesn't exist at all. And nothing about God has to be any different. That's what the denial of the principle is. Yeah. I'm not as, as smart as you to come up with something as a as a difference principle, uh, which seems to be a thing that's catching on, by the way. So, oh, I forgot to switch the the view here to put us both on screen. Uh, uh, but I, I just think of it in terms. I'm just so simple minded. I, I think of it in terms as as like when like the first time I heard of the modal collapse argument, I thought well, I don't know why it follows that because God exists necessarily, therefore his creations exist necessarily. And I think part of the issue might be the difference between a thinker like Thomas Aquinas or as somebody from, from a scholastic metaphysical background and an anal contemporary analytic philosopher, this conversation, this talk about necessary uh, versus Aquinas is probably going to just say something like es essentially, you know, God may exist essentially, but that uh, doesn't mean that, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something lost in the translation between somebody in the scholastic period and the, I don't know what I was thinking there. But anyway, I mean, I began to exist, so I obviously don't exist essentially. Um, and so just because God, even if God didn't necessarily create me, that doesn't mean that I exist necessarily, if you understand necessary to mean something like exist essentially, because there was a time, ah, when, I didn't, I there was a time when I didn't exist, and there's going to be a time when I no longer exist. And that seems to me to be what ought to mean necessary existence. If you exist necessarily, then you've always existed and you always will exist. Um, so even if God did <laughs> necessarily create me, I still began to exist and I'm going to go out of existence. Right. So the, the um, th this is an excellent point. So it's true. Even if there is a modal collapse, it doesn't follow that, you know, I am not still caused to exist by God. Uh, but the modal collapse objection is not saying that, look, if we existed necessarily, then God wouldn't have caused, wouldn't need to have caused us. That's not, that's not so much the idea. The idea is that we should be able to say that it's possible in principle that I not exist at all. Mm -hmm. You know, not just that apart from God, I would not have, but God might not have created me. God might not have created anything, right? And the idea is how can we say that God might not have created anything? How could this actually be a possibility unless we think that there is some kind of potentiality in God uh, to create or not, which goes variously actualized or not, you know, and of course, if he does that, then that would compromise divine simplicity. Um, so the idea is, is how can we say that this whole world could not, you know, possibly does not exist. Everything that God has created possibly does not exist, does not have to exist, does not exist necessarily. 
Mm. Not only that it doesn't exist essentially, but that it doesn't exist necessarily either. Mm. Uh, and I say that in order to say that the world doesn't exist necessarily, we have to deny the difference principle when it comes to God's causation of the world. God could remain exactly as he is, mm -hmm. and the world not exist. Yeah, that's because there's so a difference the between God's pure actuality and God as a creator. Like, just because, I guess it's because um, I'm thinking, even in a world where create, there's nothing else but God, uh, God's still pure act. That's right. it's still yeah. true. Um, so I guess there's a difference in God's, what am I trying to say? There's a difference in God's act, and there's a difference in God's act of creation. Is that what I'm trying to say? Yeah, that's something that Christopher Tomaszewski says. Oh, okay. uh, Christopher Tomaszewski says that God's act of creation is contingently identical with God's act. Uh, and that's because God's act in the actual world produces a creation, and but the, it didn't happen. The contingency is on the side of creation. It's not God's contingency. So, right, uh, right, right. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, this modal collapse stuff, it starts to get over my head as a layperson, but I do find it very interesting. And uh, I like the work you're doing on it. Um, well, that's going to wrap up the interview portion of the show. Thanks uh, so much to our one audience member because I'm foolish uh, and didn't set it to public. But, of course, there will be plenty more views once I make it public. And so thank you to everybody who watches this in the future. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Stephen Nemesh, you can just, again, follow the Patreon link below and become a supporter there. Or you can become a supporter here on YouTube now by clicking the Join button either on the video or on the channel homepage. And you can get access to all the bonus material uh, at those uh, different places. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for joining me, sir. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a delight uh, speaking with you. Uh, don't forget, um, you can subscribe to Stephen's YouTube channel by following the link in the description, as well as uh, uh, check out his website and his academia page. Those are linked in the description as well. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate it, sir. Thank you for having me.